0: Hello, my name is Tracy, and I thank you for tuning in to Standard Imaging's Out of the Gray, the world's fastest-growing radiation oncology and medical physics podcast. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe and share with your colleagues, friends, and family to help these stories continue their reach. Without any further delay, let's jump into this latest conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out of the Gray, the podcast where we discuss all things radiation oncology and medical physics. Today, I'm incredibly excited to have with me Matt Goss. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself, please?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tracy. So I'm Matthew Goss. I am a senior medical physicist at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
0: Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join myself and our listeners and help us get to know you and, and your work
1: a little bit better. Absolutely.
0: To kick things off here, let's go ahead and chat about your entry into medical physics. What did the journey um, into, into where you are now, what did that look like?
1: That's a great question. And I feel like everybody in our field has, has their own unique, interesting kind of path that, that led them to where, uh, where they are today. So um, for me, I, I was an undergraduate physics major, and I was very interested in doing some, something applied. Wasn't sure what that was going to be. I I had been very lucky to do a lot of different kinds of dabbling in in physics in different fields. I did astrophysics research for a little bit. I did biophysics blood research for the U.S. Army for a while, which was pretty wild. And none of those fit. I'll tell you that the biophysics was a little closer to to what I was ultimately interested in in, than astrophysics, but it still wasn't quite there. And then my senior year of college, I took an elective. And It was the first time they offered medical physics, and I, I, w- I fell in love with it. Absolutely. I thought maybe it would have something to do with what I did blood research-wise in terms of, of applicable or applied medicine. It really wasn't, obviously, but I loved it uh, nonetheless. And I, I immediately asked the professor, how do I make this my career? How do I do this for the rest of my life? And um, at that time, this is like 2004, 2005, there weren't a whole lot of programs But uh, I kind of heard through the grapevine that Duke University was starting one, and I got lucky enough to go visit their program and get to know some of the uh, people who were starting it. And I got very lucky, and uh, I was able to get into the first year of the program. So I was the first uh, first class to go through the medical physics program at Duke, and I I had an amazing time there. I, I learned so much both in and outside the classroom, made some amazing friends I'm still friends with today, professionally and personally. And came out of it with with a really uh, you know strong interest in, in therapy physics, and that's where I uh, landed.
0: An amazing introduction. I certainly appreciate that Duke is, uh I've had the pleasure of working with that institution multiple times over the course of my career, and amazing on on a lot of fronts there.
1: Yeah, I think um, the program has changed a lot and gotten so much bigger and better and, and renowned and really proud to be the first class to go through that and some of my advisor, for instance has become the director. So we're still in touch. Um, I am the president of the alumni association for the medical physics program, uh, which, you know, when we graduated, there were 16 of us. Now there's hundreds and hundreds all over the world. And we've really tried to do a lot of good outreach. And well, we tried to do some social stuff. And that obviously has uh, been really challenging over the last couple of years, but tried to get some engagement and uh, lecture series and social awareness. And partnering with some global outreach folks and setting up a mentorship program for the current students as they transition to the alumni and for uh, alumni amongst themselves, you know, board prep, job search, uh, interviewing. Uh, we, really, we really pushed uh, this engagement in a way that, that really didn't exist a whole lot before. And I think everybody's been really pleased with it. It's been so nice to be able to kind of reconnect and get, get more involved with uh, the institution that, that did so, so much for my career. Just It's humbling and it's awesome. I, I just really love it. I really love working with those folks.
0: Now, well, president of the Alumni Association.
1: I should say Medical Physics Alumni Association. When I said I'm, I'm the president of the Duke you know, Alumni Association, and everyone kind of looks, I said, I'm sorry, Medical Physics Alumni Association. And I said, okay. Not quite the same thing, but still very proud of the, the
0: Lots of credit people. due. Yeah. It's, and yeah, and some amazing things you guys are doing there.
1: Yeah, I think so. I really hope so. I got a great, great board and an amazing team of people working real hard to get these things done. So it's ambitious. We've tried to tackle a lot of stuff and I think we've really done a great job.
0: Transitioning from, from that part of your, your life in medical physics to where you are now, how are things going in your current facility? What's, what's new for you guys there?
1: Well, I guess I wouldn't, uh, it would be worth talking about kind of what happened between the Duke experience and my current experience. So to kind of let you know how I got here. Uh, but I guess it's it's worth for me to kind of at least say what i I do as a day- to day and kind of what my role is here as a senior medical physics at Allegheny. So I was hired as a clinical medical physicist. I do have a background in radiation therapy physics, uh, board certified, uh, ABR certified in therapy. So I do help manage uh, the clinical side of things for a, a very massive center. We have um, we have thirteen or fourteen now, different uh, satellites or satellite facilities, uh, kind of a co-main campus in downtown Pittsburgh and, uh, in another part of the city that handle kind of the academic side of things. We have, you know, 13 Linux, we have a gamma knife, we have a gamma pod, we have an MR linac, the first one in this part of the state. We have a very, uh, busy brachytherapy program and we have kind of a pseudo-academic uh, relationship or an academic relationship with Drexel University and we're trying to really put the academics in the forefront of what we do as a physics group, do a lot of research, have a lot of uh, abstracts and papers and clinical projects and things. And originally when I came in, I wasn't expecting to be kind of involved in much of the academics as a clinical physicist and as a master's level guy. But I found myself really gravitating towards kind of doing a little bit of both. And I think that Allegheny's given me a really unique opportunity to be able to kind of satisfy that kind of uh, problem-solving side of things from an academic, or I don't even want to say academic, almost project-based standpoint, while doing a a lot of high-level clinical work as well. So that means for me, you know, in the current role, everything from the obvious calibrating machines and checking charts and doing, you know, uh, plan checks and things, you know, doing that, but we're also training kind of the younger generations that are coming out of residency programs into our system. We also have developed and uh, had accredited medical physics residency program through Camp App. So we are in our second resident and about to interview uh, the third. We're going to have a you know, three at a time, a three-year program. Um, and I've been you know, heavily involved in that, the teaching and training, and that's been really, really satisfying and really nice to see that come to fruition as well. Um, but I guess between then and now, between Duke and, and where I am, I took a little bit of a circuitous path. I ended up coming out of Duke with a master's, as I said, and my first clinical job was at a group in Baltimore. It was a totally non-academic group that managed radiation oncology centers kind of across the greater Baltimore area, but they had a lot of different clinical things they were doing. They had a cyber knife, they had a really busy HDR program, a prostate seed implant program, and I got to do all of it. And I was really lucky to come out. This was pre-residency requirement, So I, my, my boss at the time kind of joked that you know, that was my residency. It's kind of, I was there for almost four years and I was working really, really hard to kind of get my, get exposed to as much as I could over that time. And I did everything from a little bit of radiation safety to uh, LDR and HDR implants to, again, the the chart checking, machine commissioning, acceptance, QA, you know, a little bit of everything. But the one piece of the puzzle I didn't really have in terms of my career was... I was checking a lot of plans, and I was actually even tasked with transitioning the planning system from uh, CMS at the time to Eclipse, but I didn't really have a treatment planning background. And I think a lot of physicists don't these days. Uh, I think in in now residency, you get a little bit of treatment planning, hopefully, but uh, I didn't get as much as I would have liked in my graduate degree program. And I was supposed to be checking plans, but I couldn't have made them if if you forced me to. And I kind of realized that. And I thought that might be something that, you know, to be a really good clinical physicist and be able to understand the technical side of plans, planning, plan checking, being able to really get under the hood and know how to do it would be a really good thing. And I think it's kind of a rare thing for for physicists these days. So an opportunity opened uh, up in Sloan Kettering in New York City. And at the time, Sloan Kettering had a planning department that was completely under the purview of physics, and they hired physics, uh, physicists and dosimetrists to do the external beam planning. And There was kind of no delineation between the two, and the department was kind of split in half, physicists and dosimetrists, and they both worked alongside each other doing the same thing. So I took a gamble and I moved there and I understood I wouldn't be calibrating machine or getting into VOR OR or doing any of that stuff. I would be doing nothing but treatment planning. And that was a scary thing to do. You know, you work so hard to clinically get, you know, able to be board certified and you're trying to do as much as you can. And then I ended up going the other direction and really narrowing down my focus to just treatment planning, which was kind of a hole in the resume as I like to think about it. And Especially hard after, you know, kind of working my way up in terms of experience and uh, seniority at, a, at an institution for three or four years. And then you kind of go to a different institution and you are low man on the totem pole. You are as uh, junior as junior can be, and it didn't matter what initials were next to my name. I was being taught by dosimetrists and other physicists, and I was starting from the ground up. And I was there for seven years and I worked my way through that gauntlet of treatment planning and learning how to do it and how not to do it. And, you know, New York is a tough place to work. New York is, doesn't matter what you're doing there. I think New York's a tough place to live and work. But again, I, I, I found some amazing mentors. The experience there was worth it. It was worth making that career shift, at least for a bit. Again, amazing friends, amazing mentors, people I still stay in touch with, uh, consider, you know, very close friends. And I got very, very good at treatment planning because you kind of have to, you know, it's it's a cutthroat kind of place to work and and a tough industry. But Sloan is one of the best for that reason. They run a very tight ship there and they uh, they force you to be your best. The attention to detail, the insistence on quality, it's something that I brought with me when I left Sloan. And um, when the opportunity to come back to Pittsburgh, which is my hometown, when that kind of showed up, AHN was reasonably new. It was expanding. The company had heavily invested in in a new cancer program and Cancer Institute. And I saw that as an opportunity to take all of the lessons I learned in Baltimore and then especially all the lessons I learned in New York City and bring them back to kind of work on that, the dosimetry and and planning and physics, kind of how all of those things fit together at a very new and dynamic institution. Uh, And that's what I've been doing. Wow,
0: so many amazing points to touch on there. There's a lot to unpack. I'm interested um, in starting with your experiences at, at Sloan Kettering, obviously a world-renowned institution, and a big change that had to have taken a significant amount of courage to go and kind of switch from a position where you're, you know, you're doing the machine stuff into to take on this whole new beast of treatment planning. I can't imagine that that was a particularly easy transition but one that you seem to have flourished in?
1: No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. Just logistically, it was hard. Uh, yeah. Just to begin with, you know, I w- it was scary to kind of start over. You know, that's how it felt. And, and moving to New York, you know, I, I, had, <laughs> I had an apartment and a car and furniture and all that stuff just kind of had to leave to move into a New York City apartment. Right there, that's a tough thing to get used to. And then you know it was a very different environment, extremely standardized and heavily regimented. And uh, originally, that kind of felt like a flaw. You know, it's kind of a bug, not a feature. And it, it felt overly systematized. And and uh, and there were many layers of. I don't want to standardization. Maybe isn't the right. I mean, it was very standardized, but it was there was protocols and there was ways to do things. And there was you know treatment planning. I always thought it was. Uh, it's more of an art than a science, right? So you, you people who did it were really good at it. They, they kind of, you know, they started with something and they did this kind of magical iteration and, and then the, you've got this beautiful plan out at the end. And strangely, while that, I found that to be true, in some cases, Sloan put a really rigid way of evaluating those plans and there were very specific metrics that had to be met within that framework. So you kind of had this this dichotomy of, of people who were, you know, artists at the treatment planning console, but also had to adhere to these very specific rules as to how to do it, or at least how to start, and then what metrics to meet at the end, and maybe in the middle you can be very creative and think a little bit outside the box. That was really tough for me to learn. Um, as a physicist, I think we want to, you know, we want a roadmap, we want a checklist, we want bullet points as to, you know, you do this and then you do this and you do this. The you know, TG fifty one, boom, 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 boom. Right. And it wasn't like that. And I think that's the, that was really tough for physicists in the group. And I saw other physicists come to the group after me. And I realized that, I, man, I was doing the same thing when I came here. I, was, I just want you to tell me how to do it. And I just want to follow this recipe. And it doesn't work that way. And I think that was not only really tough for me to learn, but it also, I, I see it, it's tough for the, the, our current residents to learn because I'm in charge of the treatment planning rotation in our residency. And I have to think back to how I felt when I was doing that too. But it was really hard. And I think I give a lot of credit to the people who manage that group because you have to make people unlearn what they've learned, especially people who've been in another, you know, for me, I was four years into a, a very rigorous clinical program. And, uh, and then out of that, I had to kind of unlearn everything I thought I knew. And the other thing I think it's worth mentioning is that I did not have as healthy a respect or understanding for what dosimetrists did. I thought I did when I was in Baltimore and I had a really great relationship with our dosimetry department, but you know, I, I, thought, you know, again, you know, they're doing their work and they do, you know, they're, they're hitting these numbers and that's great. And they go home. I thank them every time I see them at a conference or, or talk to them, or again, I try to, i not apologize, but I say, you guys were doing stuff that is so difficult all the time. And I want you to know that like, you know, we should have a very healthy respect and understanding for what you do because, you know, I think a lot of physicists think dosimetrists kind of are, are button pushers or lever pullers, or you kind of do it and, um, you know, and then you know it's go home and because you did your it's it's not it's not like that. It's a rigorous, difficult job. The best dosimetrists I know are ones that they're at home, you know, eating dinner, thinking about that. Oh, could I got another one percent? You know, oh, what if I try this beam arrangement? or Whatever. These people really are are so passionate about what they do and they care so deeply. And I look at physics now as kind of a complement to that. Like two sides of the same coin definitely should be part of the same team. And that's what I've really tried to promote since Sloan. And I think AHN is really taking that seriously and it's been a really good a good thing. Well, that
0: has to be great to see the the implementation of a, a cohesion, the teamwork essence that follows you into this now new role. Joining these teams together that may have formerly not been so closely related—is that kind of what you encountered when you started with Allegheny?
1: Yeah, no, it's you know I think um, historically uh, there was a little bit more of a separation between physics and dosimetry at Allegheny, and it's become pretty clear with the expansion that we've we've done and with uh, changing treatment planning systems and kind of really wanting the quality to improve as the complexity improves because we you know we. SBRT is kind of the name of the game and moving to, to hypofractionation is, is also the future. We kind of know that. And we're, we're using new metrics and there's new studies and protocols coming out all the time that are kind of changing our practice. And As we do it, we have to be uh, not only technically very aware of, of the implications of the treatment planning, but we just have to be adaptive. We have to understand that standard of care from you know, 20 years ago isn't acceptable, uh, and sometimes standard of care from five years ago isn't acceptable. We, we have to be more dynamic, and I think AHN has recognized that and has really moved forward with trying to engage physics to help dosimetry to make those decisions. A, a perfect example I'll give is, is right when I walked in the door, dosimetry came to physics and said, we're running these plans, uh, these IMRT plans in this new system, and, um, but, but what is the statistical uncertainty and what's, what are the, what's the grid size we should be using for Monte Carlo? And we kind of all looked at each other and we said, well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not really sure. And they said, well, we want some guidance on this. We want physics to engage with us and let us know, technical standpoint, what the best method is. And we talked amongst ourselves and then we went to Electa um, because Electa is, is a partner with us. We have all Electa. We're completely Electa site and uh, we have a wonderful relationship with that group. Uh, and Alexa said, you know what, well, there's a white paper here, but your group might find it to be a little bit different because you have so many different, uh, you know, you're, you're doing different kinds of plans and you have your network set up a little bit different. So we don't really know, maybe, you know, this might be something to look into. So my group and I crafted a, a project and we did some very rigorous testing. and We came up with a, a solution that we were really comfortable with and we gave that to dosimetry and they implemented it. And that's the standard. And the most interesting part is that Electa was so impressed with this that they decided to write this up with us as a white paper. And now they give this internally to their group to recommend to other customers. So this is a perfect example, I think, of of how physics and dosimetry, that was kind of my first foray into physics and dosimetry, really working together to tackle not an esoteric research-related problem, but a very applied, needs to be known right now, clinical problem that needed to be solved to make our process and our quality, you know, as good as it could be. And we've done dozens and dozens of those since. And that is kind of that sweet spot. As I said, the synergy is is exactly where I love to be. It's right in the middle of that. I love to be that person. And, um, you know, I really try to make, I try to blur the line a little bit more between physics and dosimetry because, you know, as physicists, we might not know that those questions are even out there unless dosimetry tells us. So we've really developed a great relationship between the two groups to try to solve some of these, these clinical problems and kind of, again, make, uh, make things a little bit more standardized which for such a big group, and also just constantly be improving our quality of care.
0: Sounds like an amazing effort there and like a dream, <laughs> like a really, a really nice place to work.
1: I certainly um, hope so. I've been very lucky that uh, I've been given a little bit of leeway to kind of use the experience albeit kind of a unique experience uh, being a treatment planning physicist for a while. You know, I think that AHN recognized that I might be able to fit into a role that might be really useful. And I hope I have.
0: Absolutely. It's got to be nice to watch that growth and the transition from compartmentalization, almost being siloed into now being kind of sharing a desk.
1: That's a really good point. Um, And using the word silo is, I think, really telling because I think the danger of a group uh, as large as ours, with you know 13, 14 sites all over Western Pennsylvania, one in Ohio, far north is Erie, as far south is kind of an hour south of the city. You end up with uh, it's very easy to have your physicist and your dosimetrist and your doctor at those sites. Kind of, they might start all with the same way of doing things. You kind of merge away or move away from the uh, you know the way that the main campus is doing it. And I think it's really easy to kind of get in your own habit of doing stuff. And it's really been my interest in, and my passion to kind of make sure that everybody across that network and the physics side of, of, of things and also from planning is kind of adhering to a, a set of standards and constantly going back to those when there's a question instead of developing their own way, the kind of silo mentality of doing things because you're geographically separated by so so far a distance. And that's been really challenging as well. But it's also been really rewarding to see you know, the person up in Erie is doing the same thing as the person down south of Pittsburgh. It's, you know, you know that you're on the right track when I can check a plan from one site to another site. I know that everybody's using the same grid size or, you know, the same starting point for an IMRT plan or something like that. It's been um, it's made our our system better, no doubt.
0: Absolutely. For those listeners who may be in a situation where they're struggling to find this level of teamwork, this level of cohesion. What advice might you have for a group looking to strengthen their, the bonds between the offices or um, improve uh, standardization and cohesiveness between sites in, in, in a chain event?
1: Well, so I, this isn't the first time I've been asked this. I, I, um, you know, Some of these clinical projects that I've worked on that kind of cross the line between physics and, and dosimetry, I've been lucky enough to be able to present as abstract or paper or, or give a talk at AAMD or at Astro or at the maybe Electa users meeting. And every time I do, especially when I talk to AAMD folks, I get a group of people coming up to me afterwards saying, it's so nice to see a physicist here. And it's so nice to hear a physicist saying these things about the symmetries. Oftentimes that it's a very fraught relationship and it's a very, uh, it can be very combative. What we do exists on a continuum of care. And I think everybody from the front desk person who checks the, the patient in all the way through sim and therapy and doctor consult and visit, phys- you know, all of those pieces of the, the chain are important, critical. And the communication and the cohesion among, between those, those departments is also critical. If you have one kind of weak link in the chain, uh, it's not efficient and it's, it's, it's not going to be the best for the patient. Right. And again, we have to come back to kind of thinking that we're in this for the patient. That's, that should be the number one thing that we're focused on is patient care. And, you know, I think a lot of times that relationship is it already starts off kind of rough. And then, you know, people don't know how to communicate with each other without uh, ruffling feathers and things. So people often ask me that, you know, what what do we do to get this relationship back on track or this, this partnership? And I think you kind of need an advocate from both sides you know, it's not going to work if you have a dosimetrist or a group uh, of planners that are really kind of beating on the door of physics saying, listen, we need some technical help, or we're interested in collaborating and having physics not interested. You kind of need somebody on both ends saying, you know, recognizing that there's a need. And if you don't think there's a need, I'll just be the first to say you're wrong. Like that you need, it's, it's absolutely critical in any clinical environment to have that, that collaborative effort so even if you're not doing you know maybe you're not doing research and maybe you don't have clinical problems to solve or clinical projects to work on you still need to have a really good open channel communication and buy-in from both sides and I would be the first to advocate you know if you're interested in having that uh, as a physicist I would be the advocate for your group and I would go and talk to chief a chief diymetrist or a senior disimetrist and say listen like what do we what can we do to kind of strengthen this bond what can we do? To kind of collaborate and maybe maybe the best way to go about it is find a clinical project or something that people have been thinking about answering for years you know oh uh, i don't know a good example would be like we're thinking about doing motion management what role does a dosimetrist play in in 4d and what role does a physicist play maybe we can tackle that thing together and you'd be surprised how engaged people become and people who said i i'm not a research person i don't, I don't want to do research i've never done it and if you kind of frame it as I don't even like using the word among my planners. Uh, I like to say clinical project because I feel like research has a connotation it that, that might turn some people off. You know, if you can sell it as a physicist, if you can explain it as we're working towards the same goal, and ultimately we can find something that's going to make your practice better and easier, especially when it comes to time savings. If I can show a dosimetrist, like for instance, this clinical project, this grid size statistical uncertainty, we showed that they could do the same quality of work in less time. That's a win-win. And that's, people's eyes lit up. And now all of a sudden, they were very bought into this idea of collaborating with physics because they found out that physics isn't just asking them to replant something because they want an extra percent on the cord where the fraught relationship comes from, right? That kind of exchange. Yeah. But if you can prove to them that you're doing something to help their practice, to make their lives easier and more efficient, and they have family and friends and lives outside of work, you know, we have to respect that too. Those are the kind of comments I get when I, when I speak from a physics perspective in a dosimetry meeting is they come up and say, my physicist doesn't understand what I do and they don't care that I have to stay late. They get to go home and I have to rerun the plan they want it a little bit cooler. If you're telling me that we're going to work together to make my practice better and make my life easier and make things more efficient, I'm on board. Let's do it. And, and that's where I've really found that the best success is kind of showing mutual benefit, saying, listen, it's going to help physics because we're going to be standardized. But it's really going to help the symmetry because we're going to make, you know, you're going to be able to do plan easier and and less time and maybe be less stressed about it. That's the best advice I can give.
0: Sound high quality advice for sure. I think anybody listening who has questions about how to improve relationships within interdepartmentally, uh, as, as much as, you know, even in my brain, there's still two separate entities, but they're becoming one. And anyone who is seeking uh, improvement to that bond will find that advice extremely helpful.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to give it, and it's something that I've my as I said, my career has kind of taken interesting turns, and I've really found myself as an advocate for that. And I didn't, I wasn't expecting that coming out of New York, but seeing that there's so much more work to be done in that improvement at, at every institution, I, I've really become an advocate kind of for treatment planning within physics and vice versa, and I think another piece of advice that I, that would probably help that along would be come to the table with an open attitude. It's easy, I think for, and I get in trouble talking about this in front of physicists, but when I talk about this, this way in front of dosimetrists, I get a lot of smiles, a lot of, uh, a lot of engagement because I think physicists tend to, you know, we get very focused. We, we don't see the forest through the trees kind of thing. When I say that in a dosimetry meeting, everybody says, yes, no, exactly. I, that's what my physicists, and I always like to, to start off with a little bit of humor and kind of be a little self-deprecating, which goes a long way, I think, as a physicist. And I say, you know what I, what I thought this did I put up a slide of someone like pushing a button. And I said, this is what this actually does. And it's the old, this is a little bit dated, but for me it's dating me, but if you remember the old, uh, the old episode of Lucy, where they're working on the assembly line with the chocolates and they yes. keep faster and faster and they start throwing them and they're eating them and <laughs> that's like I said that's what disymmetry actually is like because you know there's too much work to do not enough hours in the day and it's a, it's a you know you'll never get on top of it so i think when you are a little humble about as a physicist coming to the table and saying listen you know i have this degree and i went through this program this residency and i have all this stuff it's it's very easy to come off sounding like it's not that you don't respect what disymmetry does but looking at them as a very well educated well trained clinical professional with more oftentimes they have an RTT background that's changing a little bit now, but with a clinical background that is so incredibly useful uh, and oftentimes much more broad than, than ours as physicists, realizing that they're an integral piece of that puzzle and just as valuable as you are as a physicist is, is the first step. You're never going to get anywhere if you're thinking that you're going to tell them you know, how they do their job. It's that's That can't be that way. There has to be a two-way street. And uh, once you get that barrier broken down, it's amazing what you're able to accomplish.
0: We will now take a quick break from our discussion to chat about our sponsor, Standard Imaging. With 31 years of dedication to good physics, we are here to help meet medical physics QA requirements accurately, safely, and efficiently. Our teams are looking forward to helping you select the best tools for the job and are only a click away at www.standardimaging.com. You'll find information about our comprehensive total QA solutions, find access to high-quality customer care, support, and your regional account manager. We look forward to working with you and developing your program. Please feel free to reach out anytime. Absolutely, and much more to come, I'm sure. Spreading the, the good news there on managing interoffice relations. I know it's important. I know you can you can see um I've had the, I've had the pleasure of working with clinics around the world and you can see from the doors almost of every clinic what's happening. You get a good idea just based on your initial interactions. And then it's pretty clear when you find teams that do have that level of cohesion and that teamwork mentality as opposed to teams where there's room for improvement.
1: Absolutely. The most successful clinics I've visited and worked for and been a part of are ones that take physics and dosimetry on an equal footing. You know, dosimetry tends to be a little bit overlooked sometimes, and they tend to get fewer resources, and they're kind of held—I hate to say this—but held to a lower standard. And when you hold a group or even a person to a lower standard, they're going to end up operating down to that standard. Prior groups I've worked with have made the dosimetrist or, or the therapist, the floor therapist, be reading every new task group that came out or every new research paper and present to their colleagues. And they were not asked to, but they were required to go to meetings and present and be a part of, you know, even peripherally part of research projects. And there's a lot of hemming and hawing and a lot of people don't want to do that, but I'll be very honest. Those were the best groups I worked with because they were taking themselves more seriously. And when you show as, as administration, when you're showing that group that they matter, By holding them to a higher standard, you kind of grow into that role, right? And you, you, I've seen groups kind of pick themselves up and kind of raise the bar amongst themselves, and it's better for everybody. It ends up, of course, translating to better patient care. But the relationship between the groups is better. The collaboration is more healthy. So I think uh, that's another thing I've really tried to advocate for: is kind of, you know, everybody in this continuum is of, of an equal importance. And, uh, and everybody needs to be held to, you know, let's raise that bar. Let's get everybody held to a little bit of a higher standard. And it's again, amazing what a little bit of that advocacy can accomplish. I like
0: that word, that word advocacy. It's really impressive and amazing to see teams advocate for one another. You, like what I'm hearing from your, from your experience, there is this kind of interdepartmental advocacy, one you know, the right hand helping the left instead of fingers pointing at each other.
1: Great way of putting it. And I think it's all too common to, to have the latter. And, uh, you know, that's why when I do go and speak at WMD or at dosimetry groups or uh, programs throughout the country or something, I, I get a lot of puzzled looks as to why a physicist is even there. And then when I start to explain that I'm on their side, you know, and I, I kind of lived their life for a number of years at a really rigorous institution it's kind of a light bulb moment. They say, well, you know, why are my physicists not advocating for me? I got, we got to get that conversation started. So that's something, you know, I if if I make that the focus of the last half of my career, I would be really proud of that. And I think um, I love working with groups that want to nurture that relationship and get to a better cohesive place and move away from that finger pointing, as you said.
0: Well, to, to uh, switch gears just slightly here, when we were discussing a moment ago your implementation of, of these this group dynamic, you had mentioned how it affected standardization and how working with the dosimetry team it not only makes their, their makes the standardization happen but also makes their lives easier. What has standardizing a large chain with this very dynamic group of people? What does that look like for you? What how's that going?
1: That's a really good question because you know I think it's easy as a ten thousand foot view. You know we can say these these things and I can say how interested I am in this cooperation and whatever, but that's very, uh, when you get down into the details of how to implement that, things get really messy or they can very quickly. So when I walked in the door at AHN, I brought a lot of the good and a lot of the bad kind of baggage from Sloan, but I was really lucky in that the administrators at AHN gave me a little bit of a clean slate carte blanche kind of thing to investigate what we could use from the Sloan model and what we could jettison from the Sloan model. Sloan and Ahn are not the same place. They're not the same kind of place. So we could pick and choose the stuff that works and ideas that Sloan provided, and we could decide to not adapt or adopt things that maybe wouldn't work for our institution. And one of the things when I walked in the door was taking a look at dosimetry. I said, well, where is... Where's your program? Do you have a program of of competency and accreditation? Because we have a lot of different planners doing a lot of different kinds of plans. And some are new and some have been in the system for a long time. And some are, you know, we want to be doing SBRT at the satellites, but we're not really ready for it. We have, you know, ablative pancreatic and we have liver SBRT and we have motion management here. And, you know, is is everybody able to plan that? And if so, who do you, how do you decide who plans what? And we got kind of a mixed, you know, well, we're kind of working on that, but we don't really know how to implement it. I said, okay, well, we'll take, this will be something we can take a look at how Sloan did it and we'll we'll see what we can do. So that's the first thing I did is I started kind of a rigorous credentialing and competency program and that involved, again, you're having hard conversations, Uh, me walking in the door and telling a senior dosimetrist who's been in our system for 25 years and was a therapist before that. Telling them that they need to prove to me they know how to do what they're doing was a really tough conversation to have. And again, the only way I was able to do it was to show buy-in, show that I wanted to make their lives easier ultimately, show that I was coming from a place of kind of mutual respect and understanding. I I did that job and I was put through the ringer. And also kind of proved that administration really wanted this and needed this. Uh, actually, one of the accreditation bodies that we work with that came through asked for this exact thing. So we said, oh, we're working on it. We had it. And that so kind of showing that that was just not something I wanted to do, but that was now standard of care. We, we kind of had to do it. So uh, we implemented that. And it took like a year and a half or two years to get all these planners. Um, you know, it's like, well, you've, you've done X amount of tangent breast on your own, Um, you know, we're going to have it reviewed by a senior person, and then we're going to go back to the table and discuss it. Now you're signed off on this. Now you get to teach the next person. And it's this kind of, uh, I always called it kind of like telephone. It's like the game of telephone where I want to propagate the right way or a standard way of doing things. I don't want the telephone system where, you know, when you play the game, it always ends up with a different message on the end than it started with. And that's what we don't want in in treatment planning. If we decide as a group that we want to teach people how to do something a certain way, We want that person to then teach the next person the exact same way with no differences and so on and so forth. And when we realized we were kind of having that silo problem we mentioned before, we kind of all went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, there is an art to this and there is some way outside the box thinking way of doing things, but we can standardize how we start things and we can standardize the metrics we use to evaluate them. Everybody start there. And we did that. We set these standards and we had people accredit or become credentialed, kind of accredited on those way of doing things for certain kinds of plans, you know, IMRT versus DCAT versus 3D or, you know, liver and pancreas versus lung and kind of all the different anatomical sites, all the different planning techniques. And one by one, we went through and made sure that people understood the way to do it. And that when they were able to then propagate that training and teaching model down the line for new hires or people that, you know, Oh, my site's going to get SBRT lung next, next month. I better start doing some test cases and get signed off on it so I know to do it on my own. When they were being taught, you knew they were being taught in the same way we developed, you know, at the the outset. So that really made a huge impact. And there was an uphill battle. There was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of um, people kind of hemming and hawing about it. I understand that, but it worked. And we've really seen a dialing in on, on a standard way of doing things from a planning perspective. You know that was another thing that we kind of took that model and we were able to apply that to physics. It's a little bit different and much more complicated, but even the physicians' group, the nurses' group, the therapists' group have expressed interest in using that same kind of model of knowledge propagation, standardized teaching and training, and really meticulous record keeping to kind of form their entire uh, basis of kind of a new way of training. So we've got a lot of buy-in and a lot of support from the administration that way as well. That was kind of the biggest thing that we used right out of the gate to kind of up the quality again.
0: Yeah, it's a model that works. And I think the teams that see the success at the end, despite the growing pains, because I can can definitely, um, putting myself in a clinical situation, I, I could see there would be some growing pains with implementing a new program, such as what you've described, but the success at the end is the goal and the other teams seeing that, I mean, it's an attractive model
1: that's a great point you have to you know you can promise success at the end and you can say hey listen if we do this i promise you you're going to save a couple hours per plan or whatever you got to follow through on that because there's nothing worse than promising especially a group outside your own group promising a group that you're going to do something and there's going to be a benefit and then not delivering on it you know the, i think one of the things the only way to build this relationship and make it work and be a well-oiled machine is to build trust and it's very easy to lose that faith in the other group, he said, well, they, you know, physics said they were working on this thing and I haven't seen it. It's been a couple of years. And, and I really, you know, that's just kind of an empty promise. And maybe the next time they come and ask for something, I'm going to be a little less inclined to do that work or less inclined to believe that they're really going to deliver. So it's really the burden is on us. And I think what we've done is, as you said, like the growing pains were really tough. And at the end though, we came through and showed them and showed management and administration, like, listen, this is successful. And that felt so good. And I think, you know, now it's the, the best part about it is, although it is a really, that's a full-time job managing that when it's on the outside, like really starting that took a ton of collaboration with physics and symmetry and administration and, you know, you're reviewing plans left and right and, and it's a really hard thing to, to manage, but it becomes self-sustaining after a while. And when it gets to that point, you can kind of step back and say, okay, well, you know, now it's kind of doing what it's supposed to do. And you check back in every once in a while and make sure it's working the way it's intended. And then at the end, as I said, you can kind of show and point to it and say, listen, like we did it, and we're really proud of it. And it works. So yeah, it's it's been one of the things I've been most proud of. You know, everybody has different interests within the field. And that's what I love about about the field in general and especially about your podcast, because there's so many different kinds of people that talk about what makes them tick within this field. And uh you know, this is just something that I, again, kind of like finding out about the field and getting my way into the field. You know, it was something that I wasn't expecting, and I, I certainly didn't think that I'd end up as an advocate for treatment planning. You know, but I, I, I love it. I think you do your best work when you're most engaged with it, and it's something when you find what you're you're interested in and what what makes you uh, most excited to get up out of bed and come to work every day. Like you got to jump into it head first, and if that ends up being also mutually beneficial to your employer or to your colleagues, or to, uh, you know, an outside group or something, like, you you hit the jackpot, you know, and I'm, I've been really, really lucky.
0: Absolutely. And to expound upon your personal interests, I, I have so many questions for you. I, we're going to have to have another episode, because I think we could talk for days. But I, I wanted to touch base on something that I know that you are very passionate about, and that is your, your outreach efforts, and your volunteering. And things like that. Can you share with our listeners here a little bit about those interests and how you how you found these things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. That's something. It's another thing I'm I'm very, very, very proud of. And uh, you know, a lot of these things in in my career and in in my you know personal life, I kind of don't. There's a blurred line there, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, You know this this you know, interest in tre- treatment planning kind of allowed me to uh, explore some, some really amazing options with with uh, clinical projects. And our partnership with Electa—they were super supportive of me giving some talks on some of these things. And all of this led to my involvement with specifically Radiating Hope. And Radiating Hope is a nonprofit that I've been working with for a number of years now. That does unbelievable work. Um, they're an incredible group that. Was founded by radiation oncologists and, and physicists, and their main focus really is to provide access to cancer care in developing countries, and they do that primarily through the facilitation of, of, of physical equipment donation, uh, but they do so, so much more, and I, I have been lucky enough to, to do some project work with them, and I've thrown myself into working with them so much that they asked me to, to sit on the board of trustees. So now I'm a board of trustees member, and I, I can't wait to get more and more involved. So my involvement with them originally was uh, working on a group project uh, that was trying to help out some clinical physicists at Kenyatta Hospital in Nairobi. We had some success there, and and then I ended up switching gears a little bit and was uh, asked to to maybe help uh, a project that was ongoing in Bolivia, in La Paz, Bolivia. And, I guess I should back up and and say one of the the main interests of the founder of Radiating Hope is high alpine mountain climbing. And I know that this this sounds completely out of left field and has nothing to do with medical physics. But one, I myself do the same thing. I really like climbing. I've climbed for a number of years. And when I found that there was a group that did volunteering and outreach in developing countries and also did high alpine mountain climbing, and outdoor treks and and group trips and things as a funding vehicle for these projects. I, I, that's, I got hooked right there. So what Radiating Hope does is, as I said, they, they basically, they work to, uh, or I guess I should say, we work to facilitate donations from clinics. For instance, um, there's a clinic that is upgrading a machine. Radiating Hope will work to take possession of the machine and send it somewhere to get installed and to start treating patients. The one statistic that keeps popping up for me is that the World Health Organization, some other international bodies have said that, that for every 100,000 or 200,000 people in the world, there should be access to one megavoltage or radiation oncology machine. And in most of the world, that is just vastly underrepresented. We just, it isn't there. Um, you know, there is, uh, when we started work on the Kenyatta project, there were two linear accelerators for the whole country and one was broken. You know, it was something that there is such, you know, we we work in a, uh, in a field that I think it's very oftentimes easy to overlook the fact that people desperately need the care and just truly can't get access to it. That's so, that's easy to forget about. And when I, you know, work with, with these groups, it kind of urges me to, to keep, Getting more involved and really push for some of these uh, these projects so the uh, radiating hope itself started a number of years ago I've been operating for almost 10 years now and it has they started by donating an HDR machine in, in Kathmandu they did some some hikes to Everest base camp in the, in the interim uh, in the last couple of years and they've you know they have group group trips and people sign up and you go out and do some hiking and some climbing and and part of that that money, those proceeds go back to that institution in that area that you did the climbing in, which was such a wonderful model that I'd never heard. I was so interested in it. So they started in Nepal and have since uh, donated different equipment to Panama, Senegal, Ethiopia, Guatemala, Tanzania, Honduras, and as I said, we're working on this group in Bolivia or this this project in Bolivia but they've started doing treks to Kilimanjaro. They, put in, uh, they go to Kilimanjaro every year. They work very closely with a uh, hospital in Tanzania there. They've gone You know, Machu Picchu and treks in South America. And it's just been this, this wonderful model where we've seen so many people who normally, one, wouldn't get involved in kind of volunteerism anyway, or two, have no experience or interest in kind of getting outdoors and doing some hiking and climbing, especially ones like, Kilimanjaro is is a it can be a really, you know, difficult hike. That's not that's not a technical climb per se, but it's um, you know, it's 19,400 feet. It's a, it's a serious serious climb and people um who normally wouldn't maybe have been interested in that. We've seen people sign up for it and fall in love with the sport and fall in love with volunteering and being able to kind of show what they're able to do in these clinics and get access to cancer care for people that have never had it before. Is unbelievable. It's mind blowing. So I've been really, really lucky to work with them and work on, you know, the ongoing project is for me personally, is, is this group, uh, uh, we're facilitating a, a donation of a CT Anna a to a municipal hospital that's being built in La Paz. And I was lucky enough to go down there. And uh, a couple of years ago, I did some wonderful climbing kind of per, for myself, which is great and met some Of the physicists and groups down there uh, have already started working with uh there's a university down there that asked me to come and give a couple talks about medical physics, which was really, really wonderful. And they have decided they want to start a medical physics program, which Radiating Hope is jumping right into because this can be another wonderful win-win situation where we can help them through teaching and training and through you know best practice development things, we can help them. Educate the next generation of of physicists that then can then go and help maintain the clinic and develop a residency or teaching and training program at the municipal hospital that we're working to refurbish. Uh, It's been a a wonderful thing. And and I've been able to, uh, in some of these places, apply the same kinds of standardization models and teaching and training ideas that I used at AHN that I learned from Sloan Kettering. these these developing countries and it's gone over really really well while i was down in bolivia for instance you know we focused on this municipal hospital that's being built but there's a private clinic and this private clinic was very interested in how we did things in the us so i've been working with them as well and kind of helping them adapt to a teaching and training model that fits the bill for that clinic so it's been it's been fantastic and there's so many opportunities through the group to, to go out and do wonderful things. Unfortunately, the climbing part of it, we haven't been able to do in the last year or two, but, um, our director at Radio Hope is really confident that this year we're going to be able to get out and at least do one or two climbs. I myself am, am leading a climb to Mount Baker in, in, uh, August and we partnered with a wonderful, uh, group out there, Alpine Ascents out of Seattle that is going to, guide our team. And we're going to do a fundraiser out there. It's the first domestic fundraiser we're ever going to do. I'm hoping we get some more people who maybe didn't want to go to Tanzania or Peru, but maybe going out to Washington state might be a little bit, uh, easier to get them to buy in. And and I really am excited about that. I think we're going to, we're going to do some really wonderful things.
0: Well, that brings me to my very next question for you. Should one want to be involved with Radiating Hope or look to go on a climb or, or participate in some way? How do they find you?
1: Excellent question, and I absolutely hope that, that people do. You know, at the end of this, I'm, I'm going to give you all my contact information. I hope that you're able to provide that for everybody else. and I, I really welcome and hope that, that folks listening to this will reach out to me for questions, comments, criticisms. I, I, all of it is helpful and useful, and I love inter- interacting and engaging with folks in our field and outside our field. But for those who specifically want to check out rating Hope, going to their website is kind of the best possible uh avenue it's www.radiatinghopeallinword.org and on that website there is a list for getting involved and in different climbing trips we're actually about to publish the official itinerary and, and everything for this Washington Baker trip um but they have for Machu Picchu and for other things and and I I strongly suggest checking it out you know there's some amazing videos online of our director climbing and doing some really cool things there's The guy who started this, he has been on Everest several times. He has been to uh, South America climbing the highest peaks. He's been out to Denali. He is a a machine. He's an amazing guy. And I would highly recommend checking him out too. His name's Larry Doherty. And the other thing is that even if maybe you don't want to go climbing, maybe you're just kind of not interested in getting outdoors, there's always ways to give. And there's always ways to help facilitate. Um, You know, maybe as a physicist, you have a water tank you don't need anymore. Someone in the world is going to use that and need it. And being able to donate equipment, you know, electrometers or ion chambers or film in, you know, dosimeters, things that you think that may, might not be useful. You know, there is, there is a way that we can make that stuff really make a difference to somebody in, in, in the radiation oncology community in the world. And uh, so I highly suggest reaching out to myself or through the website, check it out on social media, check it out uh, any way you can to get involved because it's addictive. As soon as you start, you know getting involved you'll you'll want to keep getting involved and it's amazing what groups like that you have a skill set that is so useful and so helpful to somebody else and it's just it's so wonderful to be able to give that experience back a little bit
0: well thank you so much for sharing that with us and and the website was www.radiatinghope.org that's correct and we will look forward to seeing a whole bunch of brand new climbers coming
1: Certainly to, hope so.
0: To join. It's a good
1: mountain to start on. It's a good mountain to start on. It's like 10,000 feet, It's like a two-day climb. It's going to be awesome. I'm really, really excited. And, and they've trusted me to kind of lead the group. And I'm thrilled to do it. I'm very, very happy to do it.
0: That's amazing work. And, and certainly valuable to not only our community here, but globally. Our global community appreciates the outreach and the efforts
1: there. There is one other group I wouldn't mind mentioning because we, we do have a lot of uh, overlap in the volunteering World with different organizations that do different kinds of work, but also kind of work towards a similar goal. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Rayos contra Cancer or RCC, which is a group that I work with, also in this Bolivia project and in some other teaching and training projects. While Radiating Hope does more of a physical donation kind of model and facilitates the physical donation, RCC has really worked towards what happens when that equipment shows up, because. You need the expertise and the training to be able to use that equipment and to make best practices that fit your clinic. And RCC really picks up where Radiant Hope Hope leaves off, in my mind, and uh, has developed an unbelievable swath of teaching and training curriculum, videos, resources for people all over the world and has been so successful doing this. I've been very lucky to participate in different lectures, different lecture series, different online video curriculum, things like that. And, and that group is doing an amazing job. Uh, and I think that it shows kind of what success you can have when you have kind of a two-pronged approach where you have the physical donation and that's important as well, but you also have this really well-crafted, well-thought-out training model that, that, is, that allows people to go on site to train, allows people to follow up, allows people to always have a resource. Um, they've been instrumental in working with this private clinic in Bolivia as well. And is, is going to be, uh, I'm hoping, very instrumental in getting the municipal hospital in La Paz kind of up off the ground and having somebody go down there physically, you know, a couple times a year and a team that's working with the group on the ground there. It's been collaborative. It's been amazing. And I can't say enough good, good stuff about that group either.
0: And their website, if, if someone's looking to be involved with RCC, how can we find
1: them? Their website is www.raios.com contracancer.org. So that is R-A-Y-O-S-C-O-N-T-R-A-C-A-N-S-C-E-R, RayoscontraCancer.org,
0: And I will be sure to put links to all of these things and your contact information in the show notes uh, for this podcast. So if, if anyone out there listening would like to follow up and check some of these things out, check the description for the show for that information.
1: Yes, please and, do. And, and again, like anybody can reach out to me personally. I hope you do. I'm happy to point you in the right direction if you're just interested in in getting a hold of somebody at either of those organizations. Uh, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I'm happy to uh, get people involved.
0: Certainly, absolutely. Well, Matthew, I certainly appreciate you taking time to come and share. Your introduction to radiation oncology and all the wonderful work you're doing in communications, and now also the volunteering and the outreach programs that you're a part of, I, I certainly appreciate you taking time to share those amazing resources with myself and my listeners.
1: Uh, I'm I'm absolutely happy to do it. I'm really thankful that uh, that you asked me to be on, and I'm I'm uh, happy. Hopefully, we can do it again. I'm really looking forward to uh, you know, always have more to say. I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, and I have so many more questions for you. Uh, so, much, so many more topics to cover. And we will definitely have you back on the show very soon to cover those remaining topics. But again, amazing information that you've shared today, and, and we're ever so grateful.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy Thank to you. do it.
0: Folks, if you're still listening, please do click that subscribe button. Share this with your friends, families, colleagues. This is how these messages continue their reach. Uh, We certainly appreciate you taking your time to hang out with us today and and hear Matthew Goss' story. Uh, We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.